Welcome to Tech Talk with Optimal RX. My name is Kristen Gilmore. I'm here with Julianne Grant, and we are ready to talk herbal medicine. Kristen and I are both practicing naturopaths with 25 years' experience between us. As big herb nerds, we are excited to explore all things phytotherapy and health with you. Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. Julianne and I are here with Karen McElroy, who is a naturopath nutritionist and medical herbalist with over 20 years clinical experience. She largely specializes in women and children's health, digestive disorders, mental health and stress management. Karen consults from two busy clinics on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia, and regularly works alongside doctors and specialists, providing personalized and professional care for her patients. Karen has completed a Bachelor of Health Science in Naturopathy a Bachelor of Arts Yoga Teacher Training Certificate and has completed postgraduate study in a range of areas including environmental health, women's health and mind-body counselling techniques and therapies. Karen seeks to understand the deeper underlying causes of disease and aims to bridge the gap between modern science and traditional healing philosophies to best serve her patients and their quest for health and well-being. Karen enjoys sharing her knowledge and clinical insights with colleagues, lucky for us, and the wider community, and has written many articles for both professional and public audiences, lectured at universities, given numerous public talks, and has presented at many professional conferences in Australia and overseas. Karen is a full member of the Naturopaths and Herbalists Association of Australia, the Complementary Medicine Association, and also the Australian Anthroposophic Medical Association. So after all that, welcome, Karen. <laughs> Thank you. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah. you know, you're very accomplished, so we had to put it all in. Yeah, but um, we'd really like to thank you for joining both Julianne and I today and for recording such a brilliant and informative lecture for us on cognitive decline, which is a webinar now available for purchase both on its own and also as part of our neuroendocrine webinar series or optimal RX's neuroendocrine webinar series. I have to say, we really did find your webinar so thorough and insightful. And you actually managed to cover so much about cognitive decline. You covered, you know, you, you kind of gave us a complete understanding of brain function, the different types of cognitive decline, um, lots of different underlying causes and contributing factors, as well as, of course, treatment options. And naturally, we loved the focus on herbal medicines uh, that you utilize in practice as well. Yep. So to begin with, I know this is going to be a very broad question, but can you sort of briefly outline for us some of the major causes of neurodegeneration and explain which types of herbal medicines you use to address these causative factors. Yeah, sure. So I guess the first thing to say is that the nervous system is such a sort of fragile uh, system that's highly susceptible to damage. And, and that means neurodegeneration can kind of be affected by a whole lot of different things. So it is a very comprehensive topic, as you said, in the webinar, we covered all those different things. Um, and it can, the nervous tissue itself has quite a few different features that make it susceptible to damage. So I guess that's why we have such broad range of causes as well that can impact on brain and cognition. So the first thing is probably just to think about normal brain aging. 
but of course when we think about that it's normally also referring to something else as well so the brain aging is usually say a change in vascular flow which might be connected to reduced um, cardiovascular flow such as we see in atherosclerosis and things like that um, we also get some of the causes that could be something like oxidative stress and that can come from like heavy metals and electromagnetic frequencies which we might touch on a bit later um, and that sort of it's important to know actually i spoke about this a little bit in the webinar that that reactive oxygen species or ROS, as we like to call it um, needs to be in balance because we do need a little bit of oxidative stress for a normal healthy functioning of the brain but if we have too much of course it can destroy the brain tissue and lead to that neurodegeneration we also have what we consider is the aggregated protein or the amyloid um, and tau protein deposition which is most likely or most commonly linked to alzheimer's disease so that's a big part of the cause there General neuroinflammation, um, we have the genetic mutations in the APO genes and as well as the Sortilin genes. So some of those genetic variables can be part of that cause as well. And then you've got demyelination. Um, I guess there's lots of environmental toxins, pharmaceuticals. So the, the drug use, substance abuse, things like that. There's a lot of different reasons the brain can get damaged. Even just traumatic brain injury obviously has a huge impact on someone's ability to use their brain later which could be some from an accident, but also things like stroke as well can affect that. So yeah, hormonal, nutritional, um, insulin resistance, which I think we'll touch on a little later, but there's, yeah, there's a lot. So when we look at all those categories, we come around to then deciding which herbal actions are going to be most beneficial. So obviously when there's inflammation, we're thinking about those anti-inflammatories, um, neuroprotective herbs as well, classes of herbs can be great. Then the circulatory stimulants that are gonna improve that microcirculation to the brain that we might see as well as the glycemic support when it comes to you know insulin resistance problems um, and then even more sort of strategic uh, approaches might be looking at say the acetylcholinesterase inhibition which um, is a sort there's quite a few drugs doing that but we have a whole lot of herbs that have the ability to interact with that acetylcholine breakdown if you like and, and prevent that so we have a higher um, acetylcholine level at that synaptic cleft meaning the brain can work a bit better so that's probably a, a whole big broad sweep there but yeah there's there's lots to to cover you can see it's a huge area i was just saying it is a huge area but there, and like you said karen there's so many classes of herbal medicines to choose from mm -hmm. and i think anti-inflammatories you could talk about anti-inflammatories and their systemic properties and how those uh anti-inflammatory properties generally are reflected within the central nervous system as well so that would be a really interesting topic to discuss mm. at a later point. I find that fascinating how the yeah. body reflects what's happening systemically within the central nervous system. Um, that's really there's interesting, a, but there's a mirroring going on, isn't there the whole time with that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But I guess the ones that are fascinating when we're dealing with nervous system issues or cognitive decline are your herbal nootropics or neuroprotectives. And we often reach for them in clinic. I know. Um, mm. Can you explain to us what a nootropic is and perhaps touch on some of those mechanisms by these classes of herbs and, and what activities yeah. they actually do do? For sure. Yeah. I think the nootropics is a, it's a really interesting class of herbs and mm. I think it's, we sort of see it as a general term, I guess, that relates to that enhancement of brain function across the board. So that might include like an increase in memory, focus, attention, concentration, for example, we're seeing that sort of end point result of a change and an improvement in brain function. And so I think that this kind of classification of herbal action is really a bit of an umbrella term because I do feel that in most cases, um, the nootropics also have secondary actions that are probably really responsible for their efficacy in terms of 
their yeah the enhancement mm. of that um, role. So this might be again, like I said, improving blood flow and improvements in microcirculation. So anything that's going to improve brain function is is essentially going to improve. You know, it's going to give us an increased cognition. Uh, things like the neurotransmitter modulation, so increases in GABA or glutamate at the receptor level as well can be quite important. Then you've got the NMDA receptor and cholinergic receptors as well. So they're all responsible for that sort of brain actual function in terms of stimulating um, that cell-to-cell -cell communication that allows us to have that higher, higher thinking and cognition. And things like the herds also that increase the neurotrophins. So we've got the BDNF um, and the NGF, the nerve growth factor, um, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. They're both um, really mm. important at encouraging normal brain function. So we're thinking about like Panax mm. ginseng, I guess, American ginseng, rhodiola. There's quite a few, there's a couple of really good papers I think I mentioned in the webinar too about a huge class of uh, herbs there that, it's quite well researched. So yeah. And anti-inflammatory, obviously antioxidant, all those things are going to kind of give us that neurotropic um, trophic sort of action as well. So yeah. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? And I, I think um, there are some key ones that we like that I'm sure you, you're also using like lion's mane, et cetera, that mm. um, are, are those big hitters, so to speak. Yeah. 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 I think I do mention oh, that later. Um, we'll, I'll probably want to talk about lots of different things as we go along, but yeah. Yeah. So I think it is good. It's and it's, it's, I think mainstream it. medicine also don't really have anything in this class of neurotrophic. So I think it's, it's exciting that we have so many options here as well for our patients to really, you know, enhance even just simple cognitive function. I think a lot of patients that may be just midlife, there's nothing major going on. They don't have full on, you know, dementia or, or diagnosis at that point, but they're just getting that loss in brain function that everyday sort of foggy brain inability to concentrate so i think you know, there's a lot of benefit from just improving that brain function through some of those herbs we just talked about and they can be really beneficial and especially with all of those different um, contributing factors to you know neurodegeneration that you sort of mentioned before or i guess contributing factors to nervous system health if so many different things can impact our really highly susceptible nervous system then you know, it's no surprise why cognitive issues can be so prevalent. And yeah. I know even, I think you mentioned in your, uh, in your webinar that there are over a thousand neurotoxins that have been mm. identified. So yeah. it really makes you think how important neuroprotection is and also how useful our neuroprotective herbs can be. Yeah, so um, but thinking about some of those patients that maybe are a little bit more progressed in their cognitive decline, I know with um, these patients, compliance can sometimes be an issue. So yes. <laughs> do, you, yeah, do you have any tips you could share with us for in improving compliance of particularly herbal medicine, but also dietary prescriptions in those patients that, that uh, have significant yeah. cognitive decline or perhaps even are in a care facility and mm. because, you know, if they're unable to properly care for themselves? Yeah, for sure. It's it's interesting. I think I have hard enough time getting my my regular patients to be compliant. So when it comes to, you know, uh, people, you know, just that regular taking. I actually saw someone yesterday who was. I've been taking it once a day. I know you said twice a day, you know, but I just haven't been able to get the second dose in. Is it worth me trying? I'm like, yes, it is. It is worth you trying to have that extra <laughs> dose. So I think you know we're all busy and we're all kind of juggling that. And I think it's compliance is an issue across the board with many patients, but definitely with the the aging. Uh, population or the ones in care facilities it's a huge in issue and I think 
I mean, you can think of the really simple things like just getting reminders on phones or, you know, post-it notes, things like that, that can help them remember. And I do find that um, sometimes the herbal-based tablets sometimes are, are really necessary when they've got the Webster pack thing going on. And I have tried people before and I've had the liquid extracts and it's just not been sort of able to be handled in a care facility in the same way, which is frustrating. But, and I've even had a patient here or there over the years who's been suspicious of medicines, you know, if they're, if they're really at that sort of mm. higher end where they start to feel like they're being poisoned or, you know, there's a lot of things like that can come in with that aggressive behaviour and, and sort of just um, delusional sort of behaviour. So it can be very, very challenging because you know how good it would be for them to be on these things, at, you know, at the regular dose that you're wanting, but just to get them in. Uh, I find even just using things like herbal tea, like green teas and things like that can be a, a useful adjunct and getting that meal planning can be helpful. And even simple formulas like a, a smoothie, I find uh, I've had a really some good success doing that over time. It's a great way of getting nutrition in as well as some of the supplements. So you might be getting protein powders for those amino acids that are so important and EFAs and things like that but I have been able to get some herbs sort of snuck into those as well and they if they're mixed into everything you know it's a it's a good way of getting it in and they're more likely to sort of be able to do that each day if that's part of their routine but no it is a problem and I don't think we have any you know you just got to kind of be creative at coming up with solutions I think around these these things um, and dosing is easier to monitor sometimes mm. in care facilities because you know that they have been taking them so sometimes it works the other way and we can get really good compliance because someone's giving it to them every day and they're not having to remember mm. I think um, on the same sort of theme around patient support do you find that there's any often forgotten or neglected areas of patient support when you're treating patients that, with cognitive decline um, it's an interesting one because I think that it's more, I probably think in terms of supporting them to have that holistic approach and that lifestyle approach as well. You know, it's, it can be mm. quite um, regimented and I think even just getting fresh air and sunlight and getting them outside, like these really basic core things are often forgotten about. Um, and I think some mm. of those are the causative agents such as, uh, you know, screen times and things like that. And, there's a disturbance that can come with that, you know, in terms of the EMF type stuff, which we can talk about if we want to go further with that. But it's um, <laughs> as well as that, just that overload, you know, that sort of that brain just being overloaded. So I think we sort of forget sometimes that we need to be really attending to everything across the board with this, um, not just giving prescriptions, but really looking at their lifestyle and all these sort of subtle impacts it can be affecting because we know even things like sunlight, you know, it's not just the vitamin D perspective, but it has light itself can impact mitochondrial function. There's so much new research coming out around this increase in cerebral blood flow, et cetera. And so you can imagine a lot of people who are in, you know, the dementia sort of communities or in aged care facilities as well, where they, they really don't get that natural light. They don't no. get out. They don't get in fresh air, all those sort of things. We're seeing that obviously right now with the coronavirus type stuff too, in these facilities mm. where they're being isolated even more so. So it can be a huge concern that that, that is affecting their brain function as well as their general wellbeing. Mm. The EMF issue is a really interesting one. Do you want to take mm. a couple of minutes to expand on that? Yeah, no, sure. No, I, I, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I think that uh, yeah, obviously it's been a huge, big experiment the last couple of decades with the, you know, significant change in our exposure from the Wi-Fi, you know, the phones, obviously, but Bluetooth um, 
smart meters. Like there's so many things now that subtly in our life that, that require or that rely on that sort of communication through electromagnetic and microwave technology. So there's been a lot of research that's starting to come out around that, but we do see that change in brain attention and focus. So even brain waves and brain frequencies have been studied and shown that that can affect function and it can be quite lasting effects often for many hours after exposure. So it's not just like finished your phone call, you're done. It can actually mean that the frequencies and the brainwave changes can actually have a ripple effect that, that does stay wow. longer. That can affect mm. neurodegeneration as well. Um, we obviously know about the brain cancer, which is a little bit more well-known, but a long slow burn kind of thing. It's not something that's immediate, but I think the whole cell to cell communication, uh, understanding and that whole um the calcium gated ion channels between cells so it increased in this intracellular calcium which basically though goes on to affect nitric oxide which then you know increases that free radical the peroxynitrites and things like that so which increases obviously reactive oxygen species inflammation mm. all the things we were talking about before <laughs> and and that's where we get mm. the implication in the dna breaks as well so it's not sort of that direct cancer hit uh, cancer causing hit it's this kind of sort of you know, secondary little loop that happens through these reactive oxygen species, mitochondrial damage, and then the DNA breaks that can then go on to cause, um, you know, functional change in the cell. So, yeah, it's a huge area. And I think there's just, you know, the 5G thing is going to only add to that because it's a whole different frequency. Mm -hmm. And I think we're just experimenting. Uh, and because a lot of these things do take time to show up, we don't get that immediate uh, flow on effect that we can measure. So it's, it's, very hard to to argue your point as well around the damaging effects mm. that is yeah, really absolutely. tricky i think that that whole thing of if it's not an immediate you know sort of um something that you can instantly see the difference then people often sort of put mm. it to the back of their minds and mm -hmm. i think even um you do mention in your webinar that uh, diabetes in particular is a risk factor for all types of mm -hmm. dementia and i know that i've um I've heard it suggested that certain types of Alzheimer's disease can be classified as a type three diabetes. Yeah. Yep. And that's another one of these long-term sort of consequential things. So can you explain for us how insulin resistance plays such a, a big role in Alzheimer's disease and other dementias? Yeah, for sure. And it does. Insulin resistance is a huge, huge role. And I think that, yeah, the, the type three diabetes, um, coinage is actually pretty accurate because the link is is very compelling and i think we're only going to find out more and more as we go along so diabetes we know is a risk factor for all types of dementias so especially um for example type 2 diabetics have that two to three fold increased risk of dementia so it's a pretty straight that's pretty well regarded in the literature but that is you know that's a pretty significant one um, and what happens, there's sort of a structural deficit in the brain that is around this glucose energy metabolism and that modulates the neurodegeneration. So they found even in young adults, even that hyperglycemia is associated with some subtle brain injuries and impairment in attention and memory. So it's not just in that, that aging population either. And so uh, there's also links, I think, with the amyloid deposition around the glucose and insulin metabolism. So there seems to be... Um, the structure, the brain structures are altered through diabetes, through this sort of both dependent and independent um, interactions with the amyloid beta and the tau um, mechanisms. So it's interesting that it's, yeah, it's kind of across many different pathways. We don't have a really clear understanding, to be honest, from the last 
bits of literature I've looked at, it's still a little bit kind of, you know, not clear cut exactly what's happening because it is affecting quite a few different pathways that can in, indicate or implicate rather um, yeah, this brain sort of functional change. So so high glycemic diets definitely have a higher cerebral amyloid burden. So there's, you know, a lot of research that is kind of showing those links, um, but we don't necessarily know which is causing which. So they, and I think with the tau in particular, rather than the amyloid beta, there's some definite sort of bi-directional changes as well, both the tau stimulating changes in brain glucose production, and then that further changes in those brain glucose production stimulates the tau um, deposition as well. So it's kind of quite a complex sort of, you know, flow on effect there. And I think we know some of the anti-diabetic drugs have been shown to stimulate um, the breakdown of amyloid beta and reduce that phosphorylation of tau. So the link is pretty clear when they've been able to show kind of, you know, the, the opposite effect, I guess, of being able to block that or to reduce that through those anti-diabetic drugs that lower the blood uh, the glucose in the brain so yeah it's 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 an interesting one and we know how big the burden in in diabetes is in the community and so that the aging population and the huge increases we're seeing in diabetes is only going to increase these rates of dementia even more so it's certainly one that we need to be on to and there is something we can prevent we all know that in our profession how yeah. preventable diabetes is so it is incredibly frustrating at the amount of money that's poured into that that could be you know prevented prevented with some really good public health initiatives. So yeah, it's one of my frustrations, mm. I think. As a <laughs> yeah. Do you, in your research around diabetes, has anything come up with say gestational diabetes and then incidence of cognitive decline later in life? I'm just I trying think to... there was I a that... little bit of something. I, I haven't, yeah, mm. I did think I came across something, but it wasn't, yeah. yeah, it's not, I don't think it's been well researched to be honest. It's a good, good question to ponder. Yeah, I don't think so. It's just in the back of my mind when you think of, of mm. people with diabetes and then their increased risk, obviously, for cognitive decline. It would make sense, perhaps, that even gestational diabetes yeah. might be a little red flag for practitioners, perhaps. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. we do see that definitely, Yeah, that they have yeah. that increased risk over time of going on to develop the diabetes. It's a bit like the polycystic sort of cases and things like that, you know they're the red flags you want to watch and, and really get onto. So, yeah. Yeah, I think so. It's, it is in an, interest op, an interesting topic though, but just back on neurotoxins and, and this is um, a bit of a weird love of Kristen and myself with anything to do <laughs> with um, immune toxicity or nervous system toxicity, but uh, neurotoxins obviously play a huge role in cognitive decline. And as you've mentioned at any age, and that might be for an immune onslaught, like an infection or mold, for instance. Um, but how important do you find detoxification in recovering cognitive function from these types of onslaughts? Yeah, it's really important. You know, I do mm. agree toxins, these heavy metals, chemicals have a huge impact on most of our modern diseases. So it makes sense that the brain, as we've already said, is, is a pretty fragile, sensitive organ the nervous system mm. so and a lot of toxins do cross the blood brain barrier so it is um, and the brain sequesters toxins out of circulation into storage sorry the body sequesters but you know into storage including the brain you know different organs so definitely i think and we know the amount of research on things like lead mercury and aluminium and even fluoride you know that can affect the brain so it's it's an important area that we're doing a workup of patients with these kind of disorders that we need to be factoring in um, trying to get an assessment, I suppose, at the first part of knowing whether or not toxins are playing a role in that, in that case. And then if they are, then obviously going on and do, doing detoxification is super important. 
Um, you know, like glyphosate, for example, is a, a massive problem that we're really only starting to just get a handle on. And, and that's the increase in use of that has increased, um, coincided with that increased rise in Alzheimer's disease and autism, et cetera, among other things. So it's an important strategy, definitely, to detoxify and to reduce that sort of neuroinflammation and reactive oxygen species that are so prevalent with these toxins. Um, and really, there's no point in treating cognitive decline um, with other strategies if the patient's toxic, like you said, if they've got underlying ongoing issues. Like I had a patient yesterday's results from a toxin test come back. She's um, had a poisoning kind of issue with uh, a pesticide that was used as a like to prevent wood um like a wood borer thing and she actually like was sort of poisoned more or less and has had major ongoing problems with brain fog brain function you know um all sorts of issues sweating weird sort of heat steaming and heating issues that just continually come up and and but huge impacts on her brain and so yeah she had off the chart organophosphate levels with the test yesterday i got back pretty high glyphosate as well and a couple of other markers but you know for her it's like I can't really do much for her until we really try and lower that load you know and I think it's the same with a few patients I've had with mercury toxicity um, that that have had cognitive decline and brain fog and fatigue like really huge like that it had say amalgams removed and that was a big part of that treatment you know is to actually get help the body to detoxify those those stressors if you like so we can start and allow that healing to happen and we're lucky because the body you know wants to do that we, we're working with from our perspective our model of, of preventive health and uh you know it's working with those underlying functions and just supporting the body it wants to heal it wants to detoxify it so those mechanisms are pretty strong but when it's overloaded and overwhelmed it needs to be um supported so yes huge part of that that's really interesting, Karen. And I was just thinking about some of my patients as well that have had a bit of, uh, say, acute, like highly acute or chronic toxic exposure. And sometimes the, the treatment timeline of, of supporting detoxification can be a little bit more long-term. Do you find that with high toxic loads? Yeah, definitely. Because you've got to sort of go slow on many cases, otherwise that, you know, we can't overwhelm those detox pathways um, too much. So it is a bit more, particularly that woman I was just talking about with the mercury, like it's taken her many months to really, uh, she improved quite rapidly, but then would have these relapses where it would sort of go back again. And so, um, yeah, you do have to be in for the long haul a little bit and just really look at each patient individually because there's no one size fits all obviously as you'd expect it's quite and some people can handle things differently and can go a bit quicker but generally it is quite a few months depending on the toxin the half-life you know all that kind of thing as well so it's a great point to remember now i just want to change topics a little bit and because we heard a rumor that you have done quite a bit <laughs> of research in the area of circadian rhythms so that you've present, presented extensively on this topic. And so tapping into that wealth of knowledge, can you tell us anything about perhaps the connection between circadian rhythms and cognitive function? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it is a bit of a pet topic of mine as well. I, I, <laughs> um, around sleep, particularly when I discovered all this research when I was researching that. So obviously circadian rhythms are really massively important um, and can really affect every aspect of life so cognition is no exception i guess and on a very basic level they're 
biological variations if we just think of defining what what circadian rhythms are because it gives us a context um, so they're basically a 24-hour rhythm that synchronizes our body with the external environmental cues which the most common one we're aware of is the light darkness cycle which is you know governed by the sun and exposure but the other one is feeding and fasting signals so uh, if we're actually eating late at night for example that disrupts that normal fasting signal which is where it should be alongside the dark signal and that can really disturb our circadian rhythms and, and have a big impact on that so in terms of cognition it's definitely I think we've all probably experienced uh, jet lag and, it, and its impact on our ability to think and function so it's kind of makes sense that circadian rhythms would impact on our brain function generally so and I think the social jet lag that we many of us are suffering from now is um, erodes our day-to-day -day function of our brain in many ways from just staying up late you know not getting those sort of proper melatonin signals and cortisol signals that help regulate a lot of that but the thing i find really interesting is these peripheral clocks and so aside from this master circadian clock which sits in the brain which is called the um, suprachiasmatic uh, nucleus which is scn for short and it's really that sort of master clock that controls many aspects of cell function but what we now know is that there's peripheral clocks right through the body um, and genes that are called clock genes that basically are sort of taking the cues from these the central clock and those um, exposure to light, dark and feeding and fasting. And then they have their own circadian clock. So each, you know, the liver, for example, has its own clock. And so the genes, um, when we get disruptions in the genes, they can really implicate a whole range of issues in the body. So in terms of neurological problems and brain function, we see depression and schizophrenia in the research um, right through to anxiety and autism. So there's a big range of things that have been linked to these clock genes. And so the brain itself is widely expressed with these genes. So um, it's really important. And the genes basically can switch between activating or repressing function of the neurotransmitters and receptors. So it's sort of, um, it's not, it's, it is bi-directional in many senses as well. And it regulates emotion, cognition, um, and also just that synaptic plasticity that we know is so important for, you know, uh, brain to, to function well. So, and light itself actually has also been shown to modulate a lot of those neuroendocrine responses um, and influences cognition, not just sleep. Obviously, we know sleep so tied to that as well, but um, things like attention, arousal and performance are all linked to our light exposure as well. So it is a, it's a fascinating aspect, which is... Um, why I think we all need to know about it as well. And, and particularly the, the feeding and fasting thing. I think a lot of people don't realize um, how important it is at the times that we eat and how important those cues are on flowing into that system. And the importance of sunlight, <laughs> getting out and sunlight. And um, we, we tend to disrupt that like with our screen time and everything that you mentioned earlier in the podcast mm. as well. Yeah. I mean, goodness, we have covered uh, so many topics related to cognitive decline and, and optimal brain functioning, nervous system functioning, but with so many herbs to choose from, Karen, mm -hmm. what staple herbs do you find yourself reaching for over and over if there are such a thing? <laughs> yes, I know. It's true. There really are so many wonderful herbs. I think we are spoiled yeah. for choice and I do feel very blessed mm. sometimes to be in the profession I'm in rather than in mainstream medicine because I think... There's yeah. so little that they can do for these kind of things. And it's interesting with, um, I think I mentioned in the, the webinar too, that they just keep trying to find drugs to work with, with dementia and Alzheimer's and things, and they keep failing. Like there's just really 
mm. not a lot of options in the mainstream and it's very much a um, you know after the effect kind of thing so we do have lots of awesome herbs and I think probably some of my long-time favorites would have to just be ginkgo and bacopa I think I, I find they're really reliable and they'll often be in a prescription um, for lots of different types of cognitive decline so I find they're, they're some of those herbs that you know you're going to get a bit of an effect from even um, you know sometimes herbs are those reliable trusted sort of allies that just it'll do their thing and I do find that but I love go to cola um, Dan Shen I've been using a bit more of and that's one I think the research has really got a lot of research on it so it's good the ginsengs rhodiola obviously I'm always looking for herbs as well that have that sort of multiple actions so we're getting that you know across um, different systems or different effects that I'm wanting to work with in that individualized way and then lion's mane is probably my new favorite that I've been playing with a lot more <laughs> which yeah. Uh, yeah I really it's it's amazing once I dived into that research how much good stuff is there on that so that would be my my handful. It's always hard because you know, when you have a hundred odd herbs on your shelf, you sort of you sort of do go for your regulars. A lot of the time, I think I could probably halve that in many cases, you know, and still yeah. get good results because we do have a lot of good yeah. good options. And lion's mane, I'll just touch on that because I use that a lot in my clinic as well. But I probably specialise more in the infection immune space, mm. and um, I'm using it with people that say have Lyme neuroborreliosis or mycotoxin toxicity and those sorts of things so as a way of protecting and regenerating their mm. their nerve functions so lion's mane i think could just sit on anybody's shelf no yeah. matter what you're you're specializing in so i love that you're delving into that a little bit more too yeah. that neuroprotection i think is super important you know because i think as we we're saying with the toxins too like there's just so much everyday stuff that we're affected or that we're impacted by that can affect our cognition so i think anything that supports you know protecting those those pathways are super important. And of course it has so many other like other actions that are so beneficial. So that's right. That that's right. And get. just on that, yeah. before I let Kristen move on, I'm talking about one of the medicinal mushrooms. So I tend to talk on too much, but <laughs> <laughs> often with lion's mane, because you find you're trying to find room in your mixes to um, yeah. fit all of these wonderful herbs in, but lion's mane is such a long term medicinal yeah. mushroom that often I'll just give it as a simple and mm -hmm. I'm just sort of putting that out there for other practitioners to think about rather than trying to fit extra herbs in sometimes I, I think of it as a food and it can be used long term yes. as a simple yeah, yeah. that's so that's, that's just another tip definitely and I think you know I think the uh use of simples is kind of is forgotten a little bit these days and I, when I've been teaching students at Endeavour over the years I've always said like just try one you know just use yeah chamomile or just use this herb. why do we need to put five different classes of this you know herbs True. of the same class in and you can really learn a lot more about a herb and its potential from doing that so I do think those herbs that do have a fairly wide tonic kind of action you can feel yeah, yeah confident just to use them like that for sure so yeah, yeah. great and that's such a good point too. Like a lot of, I mean, with cognitive decline and with neurodegeneration, it's not necessarily an acute thing that you're just going to prescribe something for and then, you know, forget about. Mm. It's They're often, I guess, long-term uh, treatments and herbal medicine supports that we are prescribing. And many of these herbal medicines are, as you said, tonic and tonifying um, mm. to the nervous system and to the body in general. So when you are, I guess, planning your treatment with patients with cognitive decline, do you find that generally these patients need to be on these herbs long-term, like in an ongoing fashion? I know a lot, some of the uh, research has shown with certain herbs, like for instance, lion's mane, um, once 
people stop taking the herbs after a period of time, the effect tends to wear off. Mm. So they tend to be prescribed more long-term. Is that sort of how you prescribe your herbal medicines? Yeah, definitely. It's an interesting question because the literature on some of these things, particularly ginkgo, I think has been quite mixed because of that timing effect. And I think some papers on that short-term approach didn't really show much, but there, you know, there was one I think I found recently, actually a French study that looked at 20 years follow-up from um, comparing ginkgo with, uh, I think, pyracetum, which was another theoretical um, drug that was meant to have that effect. Ginkgo did fared a lot better than that. In fact, that drug had a more rapid decline uh, versus placebo. But I think this is where we really need to try and hopefully get more of these studies because we can see the benefit of that because, of course, that dementia and Alzheimer's is a very long, slow burn presentation. We know it has a really long build up over many years before overt symptoms appear. And in fact, by the time symptoms appear, we're already kind of, you know, fairly advanced stages into the disease process. Um, so I think it's super important for us to be aware of that, that we do need to probably think seriously about that longer term approach in high risk patients. And Certainly with things like diabetes, we're always looking, or any of these underlying issues we've touched on today, we're looking to treat those, you know, the insulin resistance or the chronic inflammation or the toxins or anything like that. So when we're dealing with those underlying issues, we hopefully are going to really prevent and slow down onset or decline that might happen. So dosages is super important as well as just really managing that long-term strategy of patient care. And in terms of safety, I think, like you were saying before, around lines main too, it's um, it is that you know they are tonics, and I, I treat a lot of those herbs as well as sort of food as medicine in a way because, um, and we know in Chinese medicine too that a lot of those were used as part of their, their food, particularly medicinal mushrooms and things. So we, I think, we have a fairly wide margin of safety with a lot of those herbs, um, and so I don't think we have to be super you know, too super cautious about that. But obviously we're wanting to manage things. And, and I think having a, a break from time to time can be good. And if someone might go for a while before they have a, a rebound effect, well, we can sort of just pulse those doses over a longer period of time. Um, for patient compliance as well, obviously you don't want people just to get overtaking things, which can happen, as we all probably discovered. If we overdose, uh, overprescribe, you know, um, people often throw everything out and give up. So we have to kind of, try and do a simple strategy that can be maintained long-term to really get the best benefit for these kind of cases. As naturopaths too, I think we focus a lot, not just on our treatments such as herbal medicine, et cetera, but we also think about lifestyle and other techniques or mm. other changes that we can make. And I think brain exercises or brain training may be something that, that we could refer to in this type of population. Do you have any resources that you could refer us yeah. to? Um, yeah, it's a good, it's a really important one. And I think that is trying to come up with that nice broad um, stroke and, I, you know, even things like stress management as well is a big one within that. But just getting people to be, you know, the old adage, if you don't use it, you lose it. And the brain is super important as we get older to continually to try and encourage that um, plasticity in the brain, learning new things. So anything that we can take from simple things like learning another language or, you know, doing crosswords, even knitting. I've had some patients where they've picked up knitting and they've done really complex patterns. So they have to really focus and follow that in a detailed way. Sudoku, you know, things like that. Creative process projects as well, I think, where you can get both sides of the brain going. So often we don't want to just focus on the left brain. We need to be focusing on the right brain as well and trying to get that crossover in the midline to really encourage those pathways. 
online. There's actually a few um, few ones that I've looked at in the past and referred people to. So there's one called brainmetrics.com, which is just a simple one. They've got a whole range of everything from IQ tests right through to just simple kind of um, challenges that work on you know, spatial skills or memory or flexibility, um, speed, accuracy of processing. So, you know, we can start to use those and then you can compare your results and train yourself a little bit through that. I think limosity.com, there's quite a few. I mean, I think you just Google that and see a lot of them are free. So um, you can just uh, apply those and see how people go and use that as part of that. If you can get some mapping going on where they get results, we also, it's a really good way of getting that objective follow-up because a lot of the time I find when people, you know, they might not notice the, the subtle changes that are occurring in their concentrational memory. And it might be that, you know, we asking their caregivers or things like that, have you noticed them remembering better? You know, so sometimes using those online resources that give us scores and things uh, can be a really helpful way of noticing progress that might be happening with our treatment as well. And that's, that is a great tip. And there are a lot of online resources, but it's not just nice to hear a couple from you because you can get lost in the crowd, can't you, sometimes yeah. when you're looking <laughs> under Google search. So true, it is nice yeah. to get a few headlines from you. And also the mapping of the progress is a really great idea. So just to finish up, Karen, um, here's yeah. a little bit of a mind bomb as well, but what is your <laughs> number one or your most interesting herbal medicine prescribing tip when it comes to patients oh, gosh. with cognitive <laughs> decline? I know, I put it out there. <laughs> it is a, I'm going to kind of have to say something really left of field in terms of um, thinking more food as medicine again, because we've touched on that a little bit. And I think as good old school naturopaths, we should be always mm. thinking about our, our herbs and bringing herbs into our diet and bringing them into our, you know, broader prescriptions than just our little brown bottles of our goodies. Um, so up here where I live, we have goat cola growing like a weed in literally, I pull it out all the time. There's so much of it. Um, but what I get many of my patients to do is to use goat cola leaves in their salad. Now, if you haven't tasted it fresh, it, it is reasonably um, strong, but it's quite palatable. And often you can shred that up in another salad mix, you know, so you can sort of get quite a few leaves in there. I mean, I'll just eat them fresh straight from the garden because I don't mind having a bit of bitter and astringent actions happening. <laughs> um, but even I've had people make pestos with the, you know, so you can add other, like maybe some, I've got holy basil growing as well, so often we'll put that in. Um, and you can make some really nice sort of food-based supplement type things, the condiments, if you like, that you can add to things. And I think that's, if people are growing food and A, I'm getting them out in the garden, I'm getting them in the sunshine, you know, I'm actually encouraging them to, to choose those wild foods. And we know getting those fresh plants, it may not be quite the same efficacy necessarily in terms of dose and concentration, but I think we still can get, that's how we originally discovered herbs, you know, was using them in that way. So I think I think I like to to kind of inclu include that if I can, if people are willing to, to kind of get exploring. Um, mm. and, and because it is a freely available, <laughs> it doesn't cost them anything, uh, they can just go grab it from the garden. So... That would have to be one I'd share. Yeah, that's that's actually a great tip. And it is a herbal medicine tip anyway. It's like, as you said, we mm. originated from food being our herbal medicine. So, you know, plant-based medicine. So I think that's a great tip. And it really will have synergistic actions with whatever herbs we're giving them on a, as a hydroethanolic or glycetract, you know, mm. um, anyway. So that's, that's fabulous and brings it back to our grass roots. So thank yes. you. <laughs> yeah. But Karen, we really do appreciate your time today. Your knowledge is huge in this area and we appreciate you sharing all of your tips and your research. So thank you once again. 
We hope you've enjoyed the. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been fun. As well. it's, it's good. It's always good fun to explore our, our passions, isn't it? Um, in this forum, and it's nice to have a casual discussion beyond the webinar type thing too. You know, we can just be a bit more free to explore stuff as we go along. So yeah, it's been great. Yeah, that's great right. To be now, here. We appreciate your time. So thank you very much. And you've actually rounded off our podcast series on neuroendocrine and our webinar series on the neuroendocrine um, disorders. And we're really looking forward to jumping into some immune-based disorders coming up over the next few months. So we hope that our practitioners oh, yeah. and public join in <laughs> to the next lot of podcasts. And once again, we thanks Karen and we'll catch up with all the rest of you very soon. Bye. Thank you. See ya. Thank you. Bye.